Twice Told Tales is a podcast about life and literature in the early modern period. I'm Leah Astbury, historian of medicine. And I'm Emma Clawson, and I work on French literature and thought. We're both researchers at the University of Cambridge. We decided during the pandemic to record some of the conversations we were having about our work as a podcast. In the 16th and 17th centuries, people were as interested as they are now in how to live a good life. It was a time of plague, poverty and daily hardship, but still people aspired to live well in an age before wellness. We talk about what makes a good life, then and now, looking at poetry, philosophy, medical texts, diaries and more. In each episode, we will be looking at a particular theme and bringing a text or example from our research to discuss that reflects something interesting about the early modern good life. Hi, Leah. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Have you been living a good life this week? I have been living a much better life now that we are emerging I won't say a post-pandemic world, but definitely a different stage of the pandemic where we have more freedom. How about you? I've been living a pretty good life. It's been the summer and I've been living quite a quiet life. I think it's what I needed. Yeah, a quiet life after a quiet 18 months. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just everything's a bit tiring and I... Yeah, I needed to take my foot off the pedal. I do think it's sort of um, an experience that we're we're um, kind of not used to after so long of being in lockdown, of being kind of socially tired rather than just physically tired. So yeah, adjusting to new normals. What has made you think of The Good Life this week? I wanted to talk about a review that I read in the London Review of Books of a book called Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake which is about mushrooms. The review is by Francis Gooding. I mean, I should read the actual book, but I immensely enjoyed the write-up of it, all about how mushrooms, or fungi more generally, are these fundamental organisms participating in life on Earth in this symbiotic, quite zany way. I found it so fun, and it really changed my view, well, obviously of mushrooms, but also of different definitions of, of life and shared life. Merlin Sheldrake is such an amazing name as well. It is. It's a perfect name. So tell me more about the idea of like it being in, of an entangled life. Like how are they kind of intertwined? Well, it's because they kind of live on and with other organisms. The example that comes to mind is actually quite a gross one about fungi growing inside ants' bodies. I'm not sure the ant survives. I can't remember. But that's the kind of thing he's talking about, you know, that there are all kinds of different fungi living in and with other organisms wow that's fascinating yeah and the review ends i think with this evocation of mushroom consciousness (laughs) if i could summarize it's a really different way of seeing the world and one that it doesn't rely on an individual perspective or even a human or animal perspective it just sounds very compelling i should read the book a friend recommended the book to me months ago actually so i think all the signs are pointing to me enhancing my sense of the good life by reading this book about mushroom life i love this kind of thing i love books that demonstrate or imagine what alternative perspectives and and, and alternative minds might be like like that book about octopuses from a year or two ago it's called other minds I, i love that one as well Anyway, what has made you think about The Good Life this week? 
Well, for the first time since the first week of March 2020, um, I have visited a gym this week uh, and it was so exciting to be around other people exercising and to go swimming. Oh gosh, I've missed having my body suspended in the water. It's so nice, so lovely. Um, so that has made me think of the good life and how important those sort of community spaces and moving one's body is <laughs> to uh, to living a good, better life. Yeah, so true about swimming as well. So today we're talking about aging, which is very relevant because it is our final episode. <laughs> our podcast is aging it's coming to the end of its life <laughs> yeah um just before we get stuck into talking about aging in the early modern period I wanted to ask you a perhaps slightly inappropriate question which is do you feel old <laughs> wow what an interesting question do I feel old I am 31 so I'm obviously not old in most people's definitions of of being old do I feel old I think I do sort of feel yeah I think the pandemic has certainly aged me this reminds me of a conversation that we had actually just before my 30th birthday in which I said that I was very very stressed about turning 30 and I remember you saying to me that actually you worry about it in advance and then you feel exactly the same once you are 30 and that is true yeah um, I remember that do you feel old Emma Similarly, I think that the pandemic has been aging. I think also I'm at a time of life where lots of my friends are doing things that I associate with deep adulthood, like moving to the suburbs and having babies and all that kind of thing. Um, so that has felt quite aging. I mean, isn't that aging for them rather than aging for you? No, I just think it's a, a kind of reckoning with the fact that time really is passing you know I think between the ages of roughly 18 and 30 gosh which is actually a demographic isn't it everyone's lives are kind of the same I mean when people started working some people had more money than others but you know we're all kind of doing the same things over and over again and now it feels like there's a difference I mean it depends on whether or not you're working or you're at university I suppose yeah but I think that to really answer your question I think I especially when I was a teenager I always felt quite old. I think I had the kind of fantasy that I was, I don't know, that I had more in common with so-called adults. Even though now I look back and I was actually a completely typical teenager and, and a completely typical child. But anyway, at the time, I think I had a fantasy that I was sort of older than my age. And around that time, I asked my gran how old she felt inside. And she said that she felt as though she'd always been herself as she was when she was 18. So she was in her 80s or maybe late 70s by this point. And I think I was like a late teenager and I was absolutely staggered by this <laughs> because what it meant was that my gran was saying that we were kind of mentally or emotionally the same age. Because isn't there a lot of research that suggests now that the human brain doesn't sort of fully mature until you're well into your mid-20s? So in some senses, yeah, I, I don't feel like I'm 18. 18 was a, a difficult year. Yeah, I know. I don't either. So I, I found that really compelling because it made mean that, you know, by my early 20s, I was like older than my gran. But I think that's fair enough in a way that people feel different at different times and that the number of years you've lived isn't necessarily commensurate with how you feel. No, I suppose there is that experience, though, of when you start seeing clothes, films, books and think that is too young for me now or 
for example, you know, there's now a revival of the 90s and early 2000s fashions. And I think that is a moment I remember my mum saying to me in the 90s when she was like, oh, all this fashion is just 70s re- regurgitated. And she, I remember her saying, oh, you can't wear it to, you know, the second time around. And I think that experience seeing my own childhood now as vintage <laughs> does make me feel older. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Although I do quite love the nineties revival. Yeah, are you into it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's got its it's got its particular style of chic. I obviously don't believe that you can't wear it the second time around. Of course, you can wear whatever you want. No, but I think people do pause when they when they see flares up for coming back. I found that totally shocking. But then again, flares is is a seventies revival thing that happened in the nineties that's now happening again. But I think that I think that the 90s flair is being revived now rather than the 70s flair. But I don't know what a fashion person would say about that. Well, I think it's to do with the like how high your the waist is. Like 70s is a high-waisted flares and the and 90s is like very, very like low riding. Oh yeah, gosh. But what I think is that actually we weren't really old enough to live 90s fashion. I suppose not. No. As women, you know, because we were both around 10 when the 90s ended so in a way you know every time something comes back it's still for the first time because you're not exactly the same as when it first happened I don't know that's too idealistic shall we talk about how people felt about being old or whether they thought they were old in the early modern period yeah or the old days so the whole of it is old now the olden days <laughs> yeah ye olde days when people were in fact still young and old i've always been tempted to call um an article or book something in the olden days <laughs> maybe we should write something about being old and make some kind of wordplay what do you want to tell our listeners about old age in the early modern period well, this is perhaps obvious, but there were fewer old people in the 16th and 17th centuries than there are today, simply because life expectancy was lower. But elderly people were very much embedded within their communities and within households. I think nowadays we thankfully have a welfare state for the time being with the NHS. And so this is not universally true, but elderly care is often not thankfully a burden for people but it was in the early modern period and particularly upon parishes that had to provide the money to look after those who were too old to work and then towards the end of the period um, you get a move away from sort of parish supports and more institutionalized care um, from the 1740s onwards so it becomes a state problem in a way it wasn't before. Okay so to your point about the fact that there are fewer old people in early modern Europe compared to now. I did a little bit of research on demographics just to get some numbers. So I was wondering what exactly is life expectancy? And I found that the kinds of numbers that tend to be given are mid-30s. Younger for some social groups, like perhaps the most indigent workers have a lower life expectancy. But it seems to be that roughly on average, for France and Italy at least, life expectancy is about 35 but that must be completely formed by infant mortality and child mortality so actually once you arrive at the age of about 20 your life expectancy is no longer 35 but you've got a chance of living into middle age and or even old age 
I know that in in England in the 17th century, a quarter of babies don't make their first birthday. Yeah, that's staggering. I mean, you, you read it all the time about historical figures who have like nine children and one of them survives into adulthood. If that That's anecdotal compared to statistical evidence. But it does seem as though once you're an adult, a number of those adults are likely to get relatively old. I looked at a book called The Medical World of Early Modern France, which is by um, Lawrence Brockless and Colin Jones. And in that book, I found one interesting statistic, which was that in 17th century Brittany, 11.3% of registered causes of death come under old age. So roughly 10% of the population is registered as dying of old age. And you can imagine that of the other deaths, some of them must be old people as well. I think it's respiratory diseases is the highest sickness cause of death, if I remember rightly. So that suggests that a noticeable portion of the population are not only reaching old age, but are thought to die of no other cause than that. Mm. Causes of death are super interesting in this period to look at how people determine what's caused death. But that's really interesting that there is an understanding that somebody just simply dies of an old age. Yeah, and I think that there's the proportion of people as well. It's quite a lot. Yeah, that is quite a big proportion. So what you're saying is once you kind of reach adulthood, once you reach, say, 20, you've got a much higher chance of living beyond 35. That is my impression. I think in a way that's my inference. I've not, I've not seen that written down. I know that people are sort of obsessed with the quest for longevity or even eternity in the early modern period. There are lots of books and pamphlets written about people that supposedly live for many, many years. There's a famous one, Old Tom Parr, who's an Englishman who's said to have lived until he was 152. He supposedly has an affair oh, when goodness. he's more than 100 years old and fathers a child born out of wedlock. And after the death of his first wife, he marries again when he's 122. And he's been living in Shropshire all his incredibly long life. And then Thomas Howard, the Earl of Arundel, takes him to London to be kind of a spectacle to show King Charles. And by that time, he's both old in age, but he's old in body now. He's feeble and he can't see anymore. And the result of the food and the environment being so alien to him, he then dies within a few weeks and is buried in Westminster Abbey. Oh, wow. But there are lots of people who are really interested in how old was he really? What did he do? William Harvey performs an autopsy on his body and says that his body is completely sort of in a perfect state and they can't determine his cause of death. That's so amazing. I mean, it's so it was impossible to know how true it was. I think a lot of people's dates of birth are quite shrouded in mystery. So yes, that's a very good point. You can see how his contemporaries could truly believe that he had lived that long. Yeah. And maybe he himself also believed that he had lived that long. Maybe he did. I suppose what's interesting about it to me, though, is that there is lots of examples of people wanting to live longer, you know, that there is a framework for living the good old life, aged life in body and mind. Yeah, I've come across quite a few treatises that are about how to live longer but also how to live a good life at each life stage. For example, I read a treatise called On Old Age or De la Vieillesse by an anatomist and doctor called André Laurent, And he gives a really interesting account of what all the different life stages are and how to live a good life once you are in the older stages. So he divides the human lifetime up. So puberty or adolescence he says lasts to about 25 so that chimes with what you were saying earlier about how the maturity has only really reached at that age funnily enough and then youth lasts from 25 to 40 brilliant which is reassuring yes and then he refers to the virile or consistent age 
which is from 40 to 50. And I suppose that you might translate that as like a person's prime. I do think he is mainly thinking of men here, but he is generalizing. He's talking about people. And then later on, he says that women tend to age faster, but he doesn't give them their separate categories. So I think we can feel relatively included in these. Anyway, so you finish your virile or consistent age at the age of 50. And then he says, then it's the rest of your life, which makes it sound almost as though life ends at 50. However, this old age, which can be the longest time of your life, is divided into three. So the first old age is green, a green old age, which actually sounds like the best time. It's a good time to be in charge of things. It's a very productive time. That's from 50 to 70. Then from 70 onwards, he says, there are some minor inconveniences, such as getting colder and drier. That's this humoral theory that I think you're talking about in the body episode. That roughly seems to last until about 80. But for the final stage of old age, which he calls decrepitude, there's not actually an age marker for it. He just says that at some point, a person enters this stage, which is the stage of infirmity. So I think what you can take from that is that old age perhaps starts surprisingly late. And that it's about the body aging rather than the mind aging, maybe. Yeah. And also this green old age sounds like the ultimate good life or at least maybe not the ultimate good life but it sounds like a very good life or a version of the good life that is possible in old age which I think is interesting he also this writer anyway is keen to emphasize that your numerical age doesn't necessarily correspond with how old you are according to this scheme he says there are many old men who are 40 and an infinite number of youths who are 60 so so it's not actually that prescriptive. This is going back to your grandmother's idea about feeling a different age. Yeah, a youth about the age of 80. So it's all dependent on your humours and your circumstances. So there's a certain flexibility. Yeah, because I was going to say, as we discussed in the body episode, ageing is the process of like desiccating the body, right? Losing heat and moisture. Yeah, he talks about all of that. So I think that there's quite a lot of attention paid to both, as you say, this idea about how to live longer, how to live into old age, how to look after yourself once you are that age, what kind of life you're going to be leading. And I think there's a lot of flexibility about the kinds of good life that are available to you, depending on what stage or what type of old age you're in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's theoretical. I think that the points you made at the beginning about the way that old people are required in communities and integrated into them and their care is incumbent upon that community gives a practical side to this theorising that this medical writer isn't that interested in. Although he does talk a lot about which soups to make for old people. Oh, really? We should put a broth recipe in the uh, show notes. Yeah, I don't know. It's a shame we didn't do a good life and food episode. So Leah, what have you brought as your example today? Normally I bring medical texts and I love that today you brought a medical text and I have brought a literary text. So I have brought a ballad, which is called A New Ballad, entitled The Old Man's Complaint Against His Wretched Son, Who to Advance His Marriage Did Undo Himself. And it is to the tune of Dainty Come Thou to Me. I will not be singing it. One, because unfortunately I don't know the tune, but also because I do not have a good singing voice. But this is from Samuel Pepys's collection of ballads that's in Magdalen College, but it's now been digitized. It's a project coming out of University of California, Santa Barbara. And often they have recordings of the ballads. This one, unfortunately, doesn't have a recording, so we can't play it to you. 
so a ballad is sort of a single sheet to a song they're often kind of satirical they are quite bawdy so they often joke about sex and being cuckolded and they're often kind of sung out loud so that it's a kind of print culture which would have reached almost all kind of levels of society they're often sort of associated with alehouses essentially the pub so I'm going to read you a little bit of it all you fathers that be look on my misery let not affection fond work your extremity for to advance my son in marriage wealthily I have myself undone without alt remedy I that was wont to live uncontrolled anyway with many checks and taunts I'm grieved every day. Alack and woe is me. I that might late command cannot have a bit of bread, but at my children's hand. So he has to ask his own children for food. Whilst I was wont to sit chief at the table's end. So sit, you know, like the paterfamilias at the head of the table. Now, like a serving slave, must I on them attend. I must not come in place where their friends merry be, lest I should my son disgrace with my unreverency. My coughing in the night offends my daughter-in-law. My deafness and ill sight doth much disliking draw. Fie on this doting fool, this crooked churl, quoth she. Each day they wish me dead, yet say I'll never die. O Lord, and to be thy will, look on my woeful case. No honest man before ever took such disgrace. This was the old man's plaint every night and day. And the couple is particularly the wife who hates him so much. The suggestion here is that they're punished by God with infertility. So she says that she'll give a hundred pounds to have a child of mine own body born. Full oft I am reviled of this my barren womb. She takes much medicine and that in turn makes her sick. And they spend all of their money on trying to get a child through various kinds of medicines. So eventually, tragically, she strangles herself in bed next to her husband and her husband, who's so full of grief, his body pines away and suddenly he dies. So 13 years pass, ere 13 years were passed, died he without a will. And by this means, at last, the old man living still enjoyed his land again after such misery. Many years after that lived he most happily far richer than before by this means was he known he helped the sick and sore the poor man overthrown but this was all his song let all man understand those parents are accursed live on their children's hand it's a bit of a twist in the end (laughs) those parents are a curse a cursed as in they have been cursed by having to live off their children oh right i see so this is a criticism of people failing to take care of elderly people and elderly relatives I see it's really sad it's quite dark it's very dark kind of infertility drama and suicide and the suffering old man being rejected and then it turns into this kind of revenge drama where where he like lives off the fat of their land because he outlives them but it's also speaking to the like a sense of order of the life cycle right that one lives through certain stages and has to behave appropriately during those stages else everything goes topsy-turvy And in a sense, there's a sort of disorderliness to his wealth, so much so that he has to siphon off some to the poor and needy. But I guess he's meant to be sort of the good old man. And he does live the good life afterwards. Yes. Super interesting. And I suppose that because they don't take care of their previous generation, this couple are denied the next generation. So the whole family is destroyed. I don't know how directly it's attributed to their lack of care for the father slash father-in-law. I think that it's sort of a general theme within a certainly early modern Protestant cheap print. 
and more expensive print is that um, goodness begets more goodness and badness begets more badness that it's sort of like a cascading effect that once you sin once then you will sin again and more bad things will happen to you and you will live a life of misery and vice versa is true if you're good feels a little bit I don't know this is pushing it too far it feels a little bit misogynistic that this daughter-in-law is cast as this evil neglector of her duty as a daughter-in-law and then can't have the children that she is assumed to want and then she kills herself because she can't fulfill that function either yeah it's a bit grim yeah I mean I think there's also a suggestion here that because she's wealthier than her husband there have been some sort of machinations in order to get them to marry so that's again a kind of a form of disorderliness yeah but it's just an amazing representation of a social world and the status of an old person within that yeah exactly Should we talk about Montaigne? Yeah. So I wanted to end this final episode of our series on the good life by talking about a passage from Montaigne's essay. I've talked a bit about him before, but I wanted to actually bring some of his writing as an example today because he is seen as a writer on life, as a really key figure who reflects on the good life in the early modern period. And that is part of what makes him famous today. So there was a book about him maybe 10 years ago or so, by the writer Sarah Bakewell. The title of her book about Montaigne was, you know, How to Live. And I think it's 21 Questions and Answers about how to live in Montaigne. That's not the exact title, but that's the way she approaches it. So he really is considered a writer about life. And the whole project of his essay is kind of conceived as being written in the shadow of old age. So his statement is that he retires from public life and service to write them he's embittered and distraught really over the loss of his best friend his father and the religious wars that are tearing France apart so he's burnt out essentially even though he's only I think in his 40s when he makes this retirement so he's he should be in his consistent age and then he should be headed for his green old age but he's not and then he suffers increasingly from illness during this retirement so He represents himself as being old and unwell, especially as the essays go on. I mean, he he did still fulfill a number of political roles and he, you know, he was constantly writing. So it's not as though he really retired to do nothing, but he certainly was thinking about aging and representing his own aging in a number of ways, quite creatively in his writing. Um, But the bit I wanted to draw our attention to appears to be quite a conventional moment of Montaigne talking about aging. So it's chapter 28 of book two of the essay. I should mention that the essay are incredibly long. You'll be deeply aged by the time you finish reading the thousand or so pages. But it's worth it, I promise. So this is book two, chapter 28. All things have their season. And that's from the chapter of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And it's a really famous quotation. I think that's often used in ceremonies today. You know, to all things there is a season. And it's a commonplace on aging that a lot of writers refer to, to think about each stage of life having its appropriateness and natural aspects. So here is Montaigne. I'm just going to read it in English. And this is Donald Frame's translation. He says, The young man should make his preparations. The old man enjoy their fruits, say the sages. And the greatest defect they observe in our nature is that our desires incessantly renew their youth. We are always beginning to live over again. Our study and our desire should sometimes savour of old age. 
we have one foot in the grave and our appetites and pursuits are just being born. Then there's a quotation from the poet Horace. You plan right at the brink of doom on carving marbles, heedless of your tomb. You play at building houses. There's Montaigne again. He says, the longest of my plans has not a year in extent. Henceforth, I think of nothing but making an end. I rid myself of all new hopes and enterprises. I take my last leave of every place I go away from and dispossess myself every day of what I have. And then there's a quotation from the writer Seneca, followed by one from the writer Virgil. I'll just read them together. For a long time, I've had neither losses nor gains. I have more provisions for the road than I have road left. I have lived and run out the course that fortune gave. Back to Montaigne. In short, this is all the comfort that I find in my old age, that it deadens in me many desires and cares by which life is troubled. Care for how the world goes, care for riches, for greatness, for knowledge, for health, for myself. That man is learning to speak when he needs to learn to be silent forever. We may continue our studies at all times, but not our schooling. What a foolish thing is an old man learning his ABC. If we must study, let us study something suitable to our condition, so that we may answer like the man who, when he was asked what was the purpose of these studies in his decrepitude, replied, to depart a better man and more content. So what I find striking about this passage is this kind of critical stance on the idea that you constantly relive youth but he's attributing this view to ancient sages rather than entirely agreeing with it although he seems to confirm it that he has incorporated that view into his own life practice so the problem in in nature is our desire to incessantly renew our youth we are always beginning to live over again so this sort of lust for youth and like what your grandma says like feeling like you're 18 forever but the body not aligning with that yeah and he says and it's really hard to draw a line between paraphrase and Montaigne's own opinion in some chapters especially one like this that's very tightly about thinking about a commonplace but yeah he says our study and our desire should sometimes savor of old age so enjoy it or 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 get what there is to have from it so there's sort of a philosophy of needing to seek a good life right yeah and the good life that is appropriate to old age and then he quotes all these poets who seem to support that point in various ways and then he says that this viewpoint of what it is to live on the edge of death because you're old he says this is the comfort that he finds in it in that he no longer has certain desires and cares so it's a calmer kind of state a quieter good life yeah a quieter good life. So he's not so worried about how the world is going, becoming rich, being great, knowing things. His self-representation changes throughout. And so I don't think this is a mission statement for how he approaches old age throughout. But I think it's just an interesting moment in the broader project. And, you know, in some ways it seems melancholic. So many struggles are in the past, but they are struggles. And I think that there's a peace that he seems to be advocating in old age. I suppose it's quite self-referential, though, that this kind of writing and recapitulating one's life and evaluating is sort of, in a sense, a process of ageing and self-representation. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really nice way of putting it. You know, there are other times in the writing where he does talk about his desires and being careworn, and I think you can kind of think of his writing project as an attempt to achieve this kind of state. And also eternity in a way, like writing and keeping writing and publishing is sort of also a form of social reproduction in a way, right? Or cultural reproduction, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, early modern writers are so conscious about that. 
So I'm sure that's part of it too. But yeah, I just I find it quite moving this idea that we constantly want to be young again, but what we should do essentially is savor the age that we are. Live in the moment, as they say, but also maybe not long for a certain kind of prescriptive, idealized life, which is interesting because I think in contrast to the sort of example that I brought today, in which there's a very clear sort of idea of the proper behavior at certain stages of life, that here he seems to be advocating for letting go of those sorts of concerns and prescriptive frameworks. Yeah, in a way, it doesn't sound very much like the good life. The longest of my plans has not a year in extent. And I, I think of nothing but making an end and I rid myself of all new hopes and enterprises. But I suppose, yeah, you can say that it is that it is about living in the moment and appreciating that you may not see the places and people that you're seeing ever again necessarily. And so it's quite a sober version of the good life. I do wonder, I suppose, because I think both of us have accidentally brought things that can be read. It's really quite dark and bleak. Um, but I wonder whether the process of aging is, by definition, reckoning with one's mortality and mortality is not necessarily something like we're seeing it as bleak and dark but it's not necessarily death is not necessarily always terrifying and horrible it might be welcome or calming and something that people long for I think also in terms of the good life it raises the interesting question of whether the good life is happy and pleasurable or whether it's good in some other sense. So this good life raised here is philosophically good. I think the bit at the end that I haven't really gone back to that much about, you know, he says, we must continue our studies at all times, but not our schooling. So thinking deeply and still learning in a particular way in old age is also put forward as a potential model here too so it's a kind of philosophical thoughtful good life and there's a lot of stoic revival around this time so you know the ideas of stoicism being about letting go of worldly concerns and facing death bravely and all these kinds of things so Montaigne's definitely writing and thinking about that tradition even though he doesn't have you know He's a bit of a tricky writer because if you take him in excerpt like this, it feels as though he's making this big statement. But I think as I've said already, it's not really representative of his whole project. In the same way, he's not exactly modelling himself as a stoic writer at all. But I think those ideas are influencing him and he's responding to them. And that certainly is a model of a good life. A stoic good life or a philosophical good life here isn't necessarily a comfortable one or fun one but I think that's a very good point about like you know that which is raised particularly by the longevity stuff is a good life a long life or is it a happy one is it a healthy one I suppose that's why we've divided all of our episodes along these themes yeah and this episode also feels very resonant for me personally in a way because I've been very close to my grandparents in my life and I've seen them all go through kind of the extremities of old age in the last few years you know I mentioned my gran she's only grandparent I've got still living now she's 92 so I've, I think I've been thinking about them a lot and thinking about elder care and the good life and what their good lives have been and or are so it's interesting to think about it in those terms and to find historical material that comes alive when thinking about our actual lives or the lives that are close and precious to us because I think there is a sense in which the experience of ageing is so rarely represented in our culture. If you had one or two things that you wanted listeners to take away from the episode today, what would it be? I think that perhaps thinking more about what you were just saying about potential darkness 
I think that there is light and shade in early modern representations of old age because I think we've had bleakness we've also had kind of different moods of calm or even kind of a certain dark comedy in your ballad and we've also had a sense of the possibilities of old age in that medical text that I quoted so I think there's a very complex set of ideas about what it is to be old and it's much more than it being sad or close to death I think also partly because everyone in the early modern period sorry to be existential for a moment but we're all close to death all the time but I think that in the early modern period people were more aware of that at whatever age so that I don't think that old age is necessarily unique in being close to death for the early moderns it's just a different way of experiencing that unlike in our culture potentially what about you what would you want to emphasize Yeah, I mean, I think just the push and pull between there being an expected way to age and look when you're old and your body to behave. And then often there seems to be the complicated reality of that. And I think that despite me saying that households were multi-generational, that doesn't really acknowledge the vulnerability of being elderly and being dependent on other people financially or physically, which I think is really pointed out in that ballad. That's kind of maybe the darkest bit is his sort of feeling of the loss of power that comes from that. So yeah, I suppose the sort of profound sense of orderliness and a proper way to live one's good life in old age. So there's a good life in theory and there's a paradigm and actual individual lives don't fit the mould very often. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all right. Well, we leave it there. Yeah. Thank you so much, Leah. It's been a pleasure to record these episodes with you. A pleasure to record with you. And now we are going to send our little baby out into the world and watch it age. Eek. (laughs) Yeah, we talk about cultural products, don't we? Aging well and aging badly. Fingers crossed that our podcast baby will age in a delightful, if not necessarily orderly way. All right. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Twice Told Tales. Written and presented by Leah Asprey and Emma Clawson and edited by Fiona Simon. If you want to get in touch, please email us at twicetoldtalespodcast at gmail.com and we're both on Twitter. 